Hi, and welcome to the third episode of Safer Democracy and the second part of The Aftermath. This show builds on history that we laid out in the first two, so if you haven't heard them yet, it's probably best that you go back and start with the coup. Because while I try to be good at re-identifying people when I bring them up, if you're coming in cold to this episode, there's going to be stuff that you'll miss. In the first part of the aftermath, we looked at how guerrilla movements grew throughout the early 1960s in Guatemala as a response to the repressive military regimes that replaced the democratic government of Jacobo Arbenz in 1954, and how towards the end of the 60s, the war exploded into a crescendo of violence during the term of President Mendez Montenegro, who, while he was elected as a reform candidate, became a puppet of the military and the interests of the United States. That first part of the aftermath was dark, but violence moved in cycles in Guatemala, and in this episode we're going to look at something a little less depressing. The upswing of social organization and civil society rising from the ashes of the 1960s and readying the ground for a cultural flourishing in the next decade. Through the thick and the thin, I'm glad you're here with me. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers, and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters, and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Given that we're talking about Latin America, and given, counting the first episode, that we're more than two hours in, we had to, eventually, start looking at the Catholic Church. Its situation in Guatemala in the 1950s, at the end of the Ten Years of Spring, was anything but good. The dictators and strongmen who had ruled the country since independence in the early 19th century through 1944 had suppressed the church. And while both Arbenz and Arevalo had allowed it a free hand again, many parishes, especially those in rural areas, had no priests or had priests who would visit once or twice a year. And as in most of Latin America at the time, the superstructure of the church, the episcopate, the bishops and the higher-ups, were concerned with ministering to the wealthy and powerful than with rural and indigenous communities. So most or nearly all rural Guatemalans at the time would have considered themselves Catholic, although their practice was a syncretic mix of old indigenous beliefs and Catholic doctrine. Despite the fact that Arbenz actively encouraged putting priests back in parishes in the countryside, during his term, the Archbishop of Guatemala, Mariano Rosel y Ariano, opposed the agrarian and other reforms as communist and worked against the regime, 
at one time collaborating with the CIA to produce a pastoral letter that called in Guatemalan Catholics to, quote, rise up as one man against the enemy of God and the nation, unquote. According to Betsy Konefal, an anthropologist who wrote another one of the books I'm relying on, called For Every Indio Who Falls, many Guatemalan Catholics, including rural Maya, heeded the archbishop's call and helped along the ouster of Arbenz. Following the installation of Castillo Armas and Lager y Dioras Fuentes, the Guatemalan church encouraged missionaries to come to the country to assist in evangelizing in the countryside, and they received an influx of dozens of Jesuits, Dominicans, Marinols, and members of the Order of the Sacred Heart from Spain. This was in the 1950s and early 1960s, before the Second Vatican Council, when the Catholic Church was significantly more conservative than it is today. The priests from Spain, especially, according to Conifal, were arch-conservatives on arrival, having come from the Catholic pseudo-fascist regime of Francisco Franco. But things were changing in Latin American Catholicism because of a thing that later came to be known as liberation theology. Liberation theology, then at the inception as much as now, decades on, was academically rigorous and intellectually complex, but I'm going to break it down for you as well as I understand it, which I hope is well enough. Certain priests and scholars within the Latin American church at that time began looking at the structure of Latin American society and the church's role in it, and what they found was similar to the situation in Guatemala, that oppressive states were maintaining their populations in crushing poverty, while a corrupt few and their foreign investors collected the wealth of the state. And they found that in many or most cases, the agents of the church, like Archbishop Mariano in Guatemala, were actively supporting those suppressive states, even in those cases when the church was not itself party to the corruption. Later built upon at Episcopal conferences in Medellin in Colombia and Puebla in Mexico, they formulated a new way of orienting the church towards the people of Latin America, something that a Peruvian priest named Gustavo Gutierrez later called a theology of liberation. And as best as I can tell, since I can't get my hands on a good copy of Gutierrez's book, there are two fundamental ideas at the heart of their new way of thinking. The first is the, quote, preferential option for the poor, unquote. That is, that although God's love is universal, it's clear through the whole of the Bible, and especially the New Testament, that among the recipients of that love, the poor come first. Look at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemakers, they who are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall obtain mercy. They shall see God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Clear enough for me. The second point is a little more complicated. The priests of liberation theology contended that the cause of the poverty they were seeing across Latin America was sin, but not, as you might hear in the next U.S. presidential debate, sins of laziness or indulgence on the part of the poor. Rather, it was the societies themselves structured around greed and exploitation that were sinful, and the poor were the victims of those structures and their poverty the result. Likewise, they looked back at the Christ of the Gospels and saw him not as a passive martyr, but as an agitator, a political activist who advocated for the poor and fought against the sin that made them so. Since in Catholic dogma, the Church is the successor and inheritor of Christ and his mission, they as priests had the same mission, to alleviate poverty by fighting the sin they saw to be inherent in the societies of Latin America and in the Church's role there. Now, I'm a Catholic, so I get a real kick out of liberation theology, but you don't have to be Catholic or Christian or believe in God in the first place to appreciate how big of a right turn this was for Orthodox thinking in the Church in Latin America, especially when much of the episcopate there was on Archbishop Mariano's side, the conservative side. What was liberation theology like in practice? We'll get more into that in Guatemala in a bit, but in general, it worked towards a more grassroots approach to religion. Priests and rural, often illiterate communities would study the Bible together, and together form a liturgical philosophy and practice. 
Given that the teaching was then being developed with the poor rather than being preached down to them, it was generally more supportive of their position and their desire to change their way of life and even the structure of their countries. Priests practicing liberation theology would often form what are called Christian-based communities, where a parish would live, work, and worship together. Those kinds of communal practices made liberation theology and its adherents targets for accusations of Marxism, but what they were working towards was modeled on poor, communal Christian communities under persecution, as understood from the latter half of the New Testament. And they hearkened back to communal, rural, indigenous life as practiced all across Latin America before the conquest. So what you have is that even as dozens of conservative foreign priests flooded into Guatemala, the church, or parts of it, were developing a whole new way of thinking about poverty and pastoralism. I'm going to quote from Betsy Conafal's book on the Spanish priest from the Congregation of the Sacred Heart, who came to El Quiche State in Guatemala. Quote, The church's practices were typical of the time, distant, centered on spiritual issues, and mystical to the core. These Spanish priests were not simply politically conservative, but reactionary. But what they experienced in Guatemala had a profound effect on them. Some were so shocked by the grim poverty and desperation that they'd returned to Spain after a short while. But for others, the underlying idealism and sensitivity that motivated them to come in the first place led them in an unexpected direction. They focused on the plight of the poor and grew to be a vital part of the community. When the church went through its own revolution, they were ready." End quote. It's called a theology of liberation because priests like these, missionary and otherwise, came to feel that simply preaching the gospel was not enough, that, quote, telling people to wait for the kingdom of heaven and to continue being subjected to the current situation, unquote, was not the most good they could be doing. And they began to view the good news as a path through which the people could organize themselves and liberate themselves from their current situation, which was how liberation theology came to Guatemala. La pobreza no es una fatalidad. La pobreza no es uh, un destino, es una condición, no, no es una desgracia, es una injusticia. Back at the end of the Ten Years of Spring, though, the influx of foreign priests was still in the future, and the conservative Archbishop Mariano Rosel Yariano was in control. His concern at that point was how to use 300 or so priests to minister to a nation of over 3 million people, many of them living in isolated jungles or highlands. His response was to build out networks of lay, that is, not priest, Catholics across the country. He founded the organization Acción Católica, or Catholic Action, which trained and coordinated young catechists. In the Guatemalan context, catechists were young men, later in a few cases young women, who studied the Bible and learned how to teach it, but who did not become priests, and who usually had other employment. With each of his few priests overseeing parishes with dozens of communities and thousands of people, Archbishop Mariano couldn't expect them to administer personally to even a fraction of their flocks. But with Acción Católica, a priest could place a catechist or two in every village, pueblo, and municipal center, keeping his contact and Catholic teaching alive between visits. Catholic action grew to include groups of young men and women who were not catechists, but who gathered to pray and to spread Catholic action's structure and objectives further into the countryside. In this way, for a few years, according to Conafal, Acción Católica enabled the church and its anti-communist teachings to reach into the smallest hamlets, using young catechists who spoke the local indigenous languages and who were part of local communities. Catholic action's reach and influence expanded, too, with the coming of more priests. Quoting again for Conafal's book, Quote, a meager 132 Catholic priests in Guatemala in 1950 
rose to 346 by 1959, and then to 608 by 1970, most of them foreign. There were even greater numbers of Catholic sisters and nuns by that time, over 800, again mostly foreigners. U.S. Marinols established parishes throughout the northwestern jungle state of Weiwei Tananga. Spanish Sacred Heart Priests arrived in the state of El Quiche, directly to the east of Weiwei Tananga, in 1955 and were joined by the Jesuits in the 1970s. U.S., Belgian, and Silesian priests were an important presence in the Kekchi and Pocomchi communities in Alta Verapaz in the central north by the late 1960s, end quote. Those men and women religious established their missions and spread out through Guatemala during the 1950s and 1960s, but by the time of the Medellin Conference that really set liberation theology in motion, they were already ahead of the game. According to anthropologist Beatrice Mons, quote, they encouraged leaders or catechists to discuss the Bible in a participatory way and to promote social activism. A vibrant network of lay church workers involved in communities in new forms of social promotion. They encouraged community participation, including previously marginalized women and youth in education, health, and communication. These activists also began to address the conflictive issues surrounding land, end quote. The same conflictive issues that had been at the heart of Jacobo Arbenz's agrarian reform and which made his regime a target of the planters, the United Fruit Company, and the fury of the U.S. government. Liberation theology's ideas and practices were able to spread so quickly throughout Guatemala's multi-ethnic, multilingual countryside, of course, because it had been so thoroughly organized by Catholic action, which in the mid-1960s and into the 1970s became the vanguard organization for radical social Catholicism in the country much to the dismay of its founder, Archbishop Mariano, and his fellow travelers among the Catholic hierarchy. Father Luis Guriaran López established himself in the state of El Quiche, northwest of Guatemala City. The state was mostly jungle and had been sparsely populated before the 1960s, but several priests involved in the liberation theology movement established collectives there, Father Luis included, organizing with Maya peasants to carve communities out of the trees. He established a cooperative savings and loan bank with his catechists to provide capital to farmers outside of state-controlled systems, and helped to set up a half-dozen communities in that state in the mid-1960s. During the violence of the late 1960s, which we talked about in the last episode, Father Luis and the collectives in the Ixcan region of El Quiche came under suspicion of communism. Nevertheless, according to Betsy Konefal, quote, the catechist and cooperative movements continued to grow. The El Quiche diocese in 1968 claimed a total of 3,600 catechists and 80,000 Acción Católica participants. According to these figures, more than 50% of young people and adults in the department participated in Catholic action. In the same year, the diocese was running 18 cooperatives, end quote. Archbishop Mariano had also founded two boarding schools for young indigenous children, the Indigenous Institute of Santiago for young boys and the Indigenous Institute of Our Lady of Socorro for girls. After his death, both Santiago and Socorro became training schools for Catholic action indigenous teachers and community activists. They worked something like the way the rural normal school in Ayotzinapa functioned in Mexico, a place for radical Catholicism to turn kids into Catholic radicals fighting for liberation. The two schools also helped to develop a pan-indigenous feeling among many different Maya language groups as it brought together students from all over the country for myriad indigenous ethnicities. According to Konefal, quote, ideas generated in school, including notions of a broad pueblo indígena and the need for its mobilization, soon made their way back to local communities. They spurred community and regional organizing and shaped indigenous student associations and youth groups in large and small towns alike, end quote. The kind of organizing engendered by Catholic action and by institutions like Socorro and Santiago in the normal schools in Mexico is the kind that has become almost totally foreign to us. It engaged with all levels of indigenous society, organizing students, workers, and peasants, 
but also holding literacy and adult education classes, making financial takeovers of radio stations, and moving rapidly by word of mouth and by actual foot-on-ground missionary work, either by priests or by students and activists. Two or three catechists rolled into a new pueblo and held a town meeting, which became a town committee, which became a new base for the movement to spread from. Catholic Action controlled a handful of radio stations, including Radio Quiche and the voice of Atitlan, and it used them to broadcast indigenous language programming, in contrast to the Castilian Spanish heard over the government's official stations, which was unintelligible to large populations of indigenous Mayas. They dedicated themselves to literacy training, improvement of agricultural techniques, and the cooperative movement in Guatemalan liberation theology. All the Catholic Action stations together formed the Radio Schools Federation, which developed educational materials for the radio and for meetings held by catechists and priests. One of the things that they put together was a booklet or pamphlet called Pensemos Juntos, Let's Think Together. Conifal has a few pictures from it in her book, and I found a couple of others, and I think it's illustrative of the kind of education Catholic action and liberation theology was up to at the time. Now, I'll, I'll put the pictures from the book up on the website uh, for the post of this podcast, so you'll be able to take a look at them uh, if you'd like to. So they developed this pamphlet through Brazilian educator Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which was a participatory method related to the liberation movements, religious and otherwise, of the mid-century. The idea was that the catechist or other facilitator would listen with the group to a radio lesson and then go through the images in the book using some provided questions to facilitate discussion. The first picture Conifal includes is a drawing of campesinos, and I'm sorry I haven't been clear up to this point. Campesino means, well, it translates directly to peasant, but I think a better translation might be country person or country boy because it would play the same way in the countries and cities in the United States. A campesino in Mexico would call themselves a campesino, but in the city it would be kind of a derogatory term for somebody. The same way that in the city in the United States you might call somebody a country boy, but being a country boy in the country is just fine. Anyway, the first picture Conifal includes is a drawing of campesinos piling into the back of a truck while a rich-looking labor contractor sits nearby, passing one peasant a work ticket. It's a drawing of the seasonal migration, when landless peasants in the highlands would be contracted to work on coastal plantations in brutal, exploitative conditions. Conifal writes that the lesson for this picture included the text of Guatemala's minimum wage law. Participants would then study the image and discuss it, considering questions like these. Who does and who does not go to work on the coast? Why are they all crowded in the truck? What is going to happen? How does the labor contractor treat the people? How will they be treated by the owner and the overseer on the plantation? Why do people have to go? What can we do to avoid having to go? What do we think? The idea in these lessons and in Frere's Pedagogy of the Oppressed and in Liberation Theology in general was not that either the radio program or the catechist or the booklet would dictate any response or course of action to the peasant, but that the campesinos themselves would begin to look at their situation in a more detached and systematic way. Instead of this is what is and always has been, this is what is now and what could be changed tomorrow. One Marinol priest, and brief aside, the Marinols were a missionary order based out of the U.S. They were kicked out of Mao's China and became anti-communist as a result, but although they distanced themselves from anything resembling Marxism, they became deeply involved with social justice in Guatemala. Anyway, a Marinol priest named Father Jensen taught lessons in cooperatives on Maya history. He's quoted in a passage from Conifal that I think is touching. Quote, he would start by explaining how students' ancestors may have crossed the Bering Strait. He discussed the origins and value of Maya customs and analyzed the common descent of the five or six Mayan languages among the participants. That was part of our vision, he said, to give people a greater sense of their own dignity, to recognize the beauty of their own languages. 
It was at that moment, he said, that participants would be sitting up straighter and talking to one another. The goal, he explained, was that students together would recognize their worth and dignity, that they would say we are beautiful people. We have a culture, traditions that are important, that are not backward. They may not all prepare us to live in the 20th century, but then there are areas that we can change, end quote. I think that's beautiful because it illustrates exactly what we're trying to get at here. The priest, Father Jensen, would give his spiel about the history of whatever, but the point of the lesson was not necessarily that they'd be able to take a test later on that history, but they would wake up into themselves and discover what was beautiful in their own culture. Kind of the, the, the awakening of the, the Maya indigenous in Guatemala. Hay cosa más bonita que mirar a un pueblo reunido que lucha cuando quiere mejorar porque está decidido. Hay cosa más bonita que escuchar en el canto de todos un solo grito inmenso de la eternidad. El chiste de silarios cuando la alegría es tanta aquí se un toroso en mitad de la garganta pero toda esta cabanga va a ser pronto una sonrisa cuando todos regresemos a la misa campesina. Now, before I go on to the most important work the Catholic Action and Liberation Theology were doing in Guatemala, the rural collectives, I want to talk about education. I might get into the weeds a little bit in this society, but it's important to understanding why what they were doing was so powerful and why the hammer came down so hard on them towards the end of the 1970s. So for a little while here, give me the benefit of the doubt and believe I'm building something. Education anywhere falls along a spectrum, one side of which is conformist. The education that a given society produces, from its version of kindergarten up through postgraduate work, tends to be geared towards the prevailing philosophy of that society. Maoist China worked to produce little Maoists, Communist Russia little Marxist, Catholic Action Guatemala little Catholic Accionistas. And none of that is necessarily morally wrong, conformist education. In the United States, education looks to produce good citizens, or more tellingly, productive members of society. Kids are meant to leave high school and college and slap themselves into the capitalist system to produce, consume, and then breed more producers and consumers. The kind of education that Paulo Freire describes in the Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and pedagogy means method of teaching, falls towards the other end of the educational spectrum. It, like the theology of Catholic action, was an education of liberation, and the people it was intended for were oppressed members of an oppressive society, a society that would seek, through its educational system, to make those oppressed peoples good members of their society. Which is exactly the kind of education that the Guatemalan state was offering to the vast majority of its population in the 1950s. Rural peasants were afforded the bare minimum of elementary education because they didn't really need to read or write or think for themselves in order to farm their tiny plots of land in crushing poverty or to go work like slaves in the large landholders' plantations for a season at a time. A thorough education would actually have made them worse members of society. An ability to read and form complex thoughts might lead them to see that their rights under the Guatemalan constitution were being constantly abused, might lead them to know what the minimum wage actually was, might let them, through writing, communicate with each other apart from word of mouth. Far from being modeled on what we think of as a typical good education, Paulo Freire's pedagogy looks much more like the pamphlet that we just looked at from Catholic Action Radio Schools. Instead of teaching math and science and history, necessarily, the teacher leads the students in cooperatively realizing their situation, oppression, and the mechanisms that lead to it. 
An adult Guatemalan peasant in the 1960s could easily have been illiterate and exploited all his life without ever having had a good idea of why, or that things could be a different way, or that it might be in his immediate power to effect change. Fair writes that part of his pedagogy is geared towards overcoming the sense of powerlessness engendered by an oppressive society so that you can then work towards liberation. To give an example from back home, take inner city education, the constant shame of the system, right? Schools are wildly segregated, and despite infusions of cash and teaching initiatives and reform, they never get better. They just don't seem to make sense to us, right? But from Paulo Freire's perspective, they're in line. Those schools generate employees for all the city establishments frequented by the more successful from the suburbs. The bus drivers, the waiters, the subway operators, the meter maids, the retail workers, the sandwich artists. And whenever there are quote-unquote success stories from those schools and those communities, they don't last. Why? As soon as somebody graduates as a well-formed product of that educational system, somebody gets to go to college out of an inner-city school, their goal is to be a productive member of society. So they move up and out, and the residual community stays the same. That kid who escaped, he goes to a suburb, and the community he came from stays in stasis. If you wanted to go even further into Frere's territory, which is uncomfortable even for me, you could say that the education of those schools is working, because they're providing employment for police and state prison guards and even more for our ballooning private prison industry. And you could imagine in inner city schools that if civics classes were less about analyzing for the umpteenth time why the founding fathers got it right and more about analyzing why the schools are bad and why black communities are neglected and why desegregation didn't take in the 60s and the 70s and why black people are the outsized targets of state repression and police violence and how to organize and what to do about it, you might have more interested students, and you might have more graduates that set about changing their communities rather than escaping them. But that's all further afield. The point I want to get across is that education is powerful, and not just the way that the president means when he wants to put more kids into pre-K or more high school grads into STEM majors, but that the way that you educate your youth or the way that they manage to be educated, whether on the conformist or liberationist ends of the spectrum, can powerfully affect the way that generation will interact with your societies, slot themselves into it, or overthrow it. It's fear of freedom, it's uh, anything you want, you know. Freire describes that very well, that it is not that easy to go and tell people, think by yourself, think for yourself. It is very dangerous and most people would resist it, even violently. If I can add something to that, remember that Freire was not just teaching literacy. In fact, right. if you look at his pedagogy of the oppressed, it's consciousness raising. That's the point. Literacy is an instrument for it. Consciousness raising leads to radical and revolutionary change. So, back to this cooperatives I mentioned. Why form them in the first place, other than that liberation theology was big on Christian-based communities? Well, for the same reason that Arbenz tried to make the agrarian reform work. The vast majority of arable land in Guatemala, upwards of 70%, was owned by large landholders in plantations called fincas, or by foreign corporations like the United Fruit Company. With the consequence that the vast majority of the Guatemalan population, poor rural indigenous Maya and smaller numbers of poor mixed-race Latinos, subsisted on tiny plots in the infertile highlands, whereas totally landless migrant workers living in conditions of serfdom. And Conafal says that while the regimes after Arbenz were able to undo the agrarian reform, they were unable to wipe away the expectations of land or the experience with organizing that it had engendered. The other reason was that before independence, and especially before colonization by the Spanish, the basic political unit of the Mayan countryside had been the Pueblo, a group of families in a village that occupied and farmed land held in common. 
All across Latin America before the conquest, the basic indigenous arrangement had been, more or less, the cooperative. In turn, although the large plantations owed their existence to the theft of indigenous communal lands, they were dependent on cheap indigenous migrant labor. So plantation owners, and by extension the military's interest, was in keeping the peasants just able to support themselves so that the plantation owners didn't have to pay them year-round, and just poor enough that they would have to come back and work during planting and harvest. The peasants and the priests of liberation theology were understandably looking for a way to break that system up. Peasants who lived in the highlands but did seasonal work on the fincas were the largest group of early migrants to the cooperatives, possibly because they'd seen work both on their own small homesteads and on the plantations and knew the difference. Quoting now for anthropologist Beatrice Mans on interviews she conducted with migrant laborers. Quote, the finca's housing conditions were appalling and reminded me of a classic piece of writing by C.L.R. James. People were housed like animals in huts built around a square. These huts were about 20 to 25 feet long, 12 feet wide and about 15 in height, divided by partitions into two or three rooms. They were windowless and light entered only by the door. The floor was beaten earth, the bed was of straw, hides or rude contrivance of cords tied on posts. Steele R. James was not describing contemporary Guatemala, but rather slave quarters in Haiti in the early 19th century. What I saw on the finca that morning was surprisingly similar, except that there were no fruit trees. We are housed as if we were pigs, said one woman matter-of-factly, recalling that in the finca de los Taros, that is how we sleep there, 50 people, some this way, some that way, and the fires in between. There are no beds. These crude structures also lacked sanitary facilities, electricity, running water, even outer walls for protection from the torrential tropical rains. The floor was packed earth, which quickly turned into mud during downpours. I visited a plantation where bulls were housed in far better conditions. The animals, shipped in from Texas, had a structure made of cement with metal roofing, kept clean by a team of workers. The plantation was a breeding ground for contagious diseases, and many workers became seriously ill with diarrhea, malaria, dysentery, respiratory illnesses, and chemical insecticide poisoning. Children were especially susceptible and vulnerable to an early death." End quote. The cooperatives that grew up in the liberation theology and Catholic action movements were a direct response to the system of cyclical exploitation of peasants in Guatemala, an attempt to recover ancient indigenous ways of communal life, and an escape, possibly, from the crushing poverty of their current existence. Under the direction of Father Luis from the Sacred Heart and other Mary Noel and Dominican priests, groups of peasants formed committees and formally requested land from the National Institute for Agrarian Transformation. Now, I know I've brought up a lot of names, but this one is good to remember. It was called INTA, I-N-T-A, and it was the agency that the military government had set up to appease calls for land reform. At that particular point in time, the state had a growing interest in developing a strip of land called the Franja Transversal del Norte, which is the Northern Transversal Strip, or FTN, which ran in a broadband through the northern states. And since the land that the peasants were requesting was uninhabited, inhospitable-seeming jungle, the requests were approved, although the titles for the actual ownership of the land often did not appear or did so in a form that would not prove to be legally binding. In any case, several different bands of peasants walked for weeks from their highland holdings in the jungles of El Quiche and Huehuetenango, along the border with Mexico, in a region known as the Ixcan. They worked in shifts to clear trees and plants, and they discovered that underneath the forest the land was fertile. They built houses, formed schools, and developed a thriving regional trade in foodstuffs, and the handicrafts they all needed as new settlers in a new land. By the 1970s, many of the jungle communities had begun growing cardamom for export to Guatemala City. 
accomplished by priests like the Marinole William Woods, who flew goods into and out of the jungle in a small Cessna airplane he'd learned to pilot himself. The rural cooperatives probably never held more than 100,000 peasants, even at their height later in the decade, but they were a testament to what liberation theology and average Guatemalans were able to accomplish, despite the violence, once they'd managed to eke out a little freedom from the hand of the state. This is a podcast about America, and everything has got to eventually tie in. And what the cooperatives prove is that the Guatemalans weren't ungovernable or prone to violence and guerrilla war or a burgeoning communist or any other excuse we or anyone else used to justify supporting the regime at the time. A precious few Guatemalans managed to create a life worth living, not with the help of, but in spite of the state, that we and our friends in the first world were determined to prop up. This is all the result of years of consciousness raising. Uh, in fairer sense, not just literacy, but learning who you are, what your rights are, why you can overcome oppression, uh, taking control of your lives. And that's what the heresy was in Latin America. The, you know, people going, priests, others going into the poor areas and trying to bring this about. And that's why they had to be crushed. So with all that said, back to national affairs. When we left off, Mendez Montenegro of the Revolutionary Party was still president, and still the puppet of the military. The guerrillas had been virtually wiped out, and their cells in the city eliminated or driven into hiding. Violence on both sides towards 1970 was tapering off, though more so the rebels than the state. In 1970, Guatemala held another election, and this time there was no savior from abroad, nor any successful Revolutionary Party candidate. An alliance of the military, the Institutional Democratic Party, which was the party of the military, and the Movimiento para la Liberación Nacional, the pseudo-fascist party that Castillo Armas set up, came together to elect their chosen candidate, Colonel Carlos Arana Osorio, who you might remember from the first part as the leader of Operation Guatemala, which swept the guerrilla out of the eastern provinces. He was also known as the Butcher of Zacapa. Despite the guerrilla's weak position on his election day in July 1970, Arana Osorio felt that there was still some cleaning up to do. He said, shortly after coming into office, that, quote, If it is necessary to turn the country into a graveyard in order to pacify it, I will not hesitate to do so, unquote. He made good on that promise, declaring a state of siege in November 1970 and again suspending the Constitution and civil liberties. He imposed curfews and a dress code in the cities. His government carried out 1,600 detentions of suspected dissidents in the first two weeks of the state of siege. They ordered and committed 700 executions in the first two months, focusing on leftists, students, activists, labor union leaders, and anyone suspected of association with them, especially in the cities. Extra attention was given to journalists who spoke out against the regime, and in the early days, many were detained, executed, or disappeared. The state of siege continued into 1971 and 1972, provoking protests which the state put down mercilessly. Amnesty International's 1972 report estimated that 7,000 Guatemalan civilians were killed or disappeared in 1971, and another 8,000 in 1972. Fear in the cities was pervasive. Suspicion by a neighbor, a loose word, anything could result in a denunciation and a visit from plainclothes police or a death squad, a trip to a torture chamber, or up into an airplane for a parachuteless drop into the Atlantic. And you have to remember that as this goes on, and it goes on for years, that the people of Guatemala were still trying to live. You read or you hear about this kind of thing, and you imagine yourself hiding or leaving the city for a while or whatever. But you can only do that for so long, and repressive governments aren't in favor of the movement of people or of emigration, for the most part. And you have to go on living your life, 
going to work or school, knowing that people are disappearing everywhere, that the government is actively and violently plotting against, potentially, every one of its citizens. Amnesty estimated that as many as 42,000 Guatemalans died in all of the violence between 1966 and 1973. Insurgent activities and even more low-profile stuff from the PGT, uh, the Guatemalan Communist Party, and labor unions like overt organizing protests and strikes were basically non-existent from the late 1960s through 1976. The violence in the late 60s, and especially Arana Osorio's state of siege from 70 to 72, had driven everyone underground, all of which ended up improving the situation in a very limited sense after the election in 1974. During that campaign season, two major contenders came to the forefront. The first was General Kiel Eugenio Laujerud Garcia, hereafter Laujerud Garcia because I find his name pretty difficult, who ran for the military on the ticket of the Institutional Democratic Party, the party of the military. His opponent was General José Efraín Rios Montt, hereafter Rios Montt, because that's how everyone refers to him, who ran for the Christian Democratic Party, which was supported by Catholic Action, the nascent evangelical community, and other social Christian organizations. It looks as though, or at least Amnesty and other election monitoring organizations reported that, Rios Montt won the popular vote, but the military rigged the counts, and Laurud Garcia became president in July 1974, without the need for a coup or any additional bloodshed. Don't forget the name Rios Montt, though. We'll become back to him later. The brief and limited upside to all the violence in 71 and 72 was that Laurud Garcia, on taking office, relaxed the repression and the controls on civil liberties and the press, and allowed Guatemalans some freedom to begin rebuilding their society. From the anthropologist Beatrice Mons, quote, The decade of the 1970s saw an upsurge of political activity and optimism. In Guatemala City, students and teachers and workers mobilized, displaying a political resolve and optimism that change was possible, unquote. Two small examples of that mobilization in the cities were two houses run by the Jesuits and the Marinols. The Jesuits ran the Center for Investigative and Social Action, which was staffed by priests who had moved on from an academic Marxist outlook on the country's situation to one more based in indigenous culture and issues. The Jesuit Ricardo Faya is quoted in Conafal as saying that it was for, quote, priests who were no longer tied to the university, but to the countryside, unquote, who used the house as a base to do research and organizing among peasant communities in the highlands. The Marinals ran the Centro Indígena, the indigenous center, a house or complex with a dozen rooms set up to host Maya organizing and discussion. Pulling a paragraph from Conafal now, quote, It was a resource for growing numbers of young Mayas, men and women, who were going to the city in search of jobs, a place for domestic workers, students, and activists to gather, meet, learn, and organize. Teachers gave workshops on how to speak Spanish. The center organized student work brigades, teams that helped in earthquake reconstruction in nearby communities. One young woman described the meetings of the Centro Indígena, with Mayas in the city gathering every Sunday. She said, It was happy, lively when we met there. I wanted to be a part of all of it. I used traje, indigenous traditional dress, again, wanted to help my compañeros. She was always humiliated when she wore traje in the city, she said, but she did it anyway, to work to change discrimination, end quote. Both of those houses sound like small steps, and in the way they were, a few rooms, a few priests, a few classes, a few students. But in the first place, they were like the first flowers in spring coming up through the snow, the first institutions emerging from the wreckage of the last six years, and apart that they were focused specifically on Maya organizing and enrichment was important in itself. 
It would be like focusing on Native Americans in the 1870s or on blacks in 1930. Not maybe as frowned upon as in the past, but progressive and still absolutely vulnerable to discrimination and violence. With Arana Osorio behind them, Guatemalans were starting to look towards the future again. And what would become the opposition was not coalescing around the cities and around classical socialism this time, but beginning to focus on the issues of cultural and ethnic discrimination that had kept Guatemala divided strictly into white Ladino and darker Maya indigenous classes since the conquest. The Maya peoples of all different languages and customs were finding their voice. Now, back to the cooperatives in the 70s, in the jungles of the Northwest, the colonization projects were also flourishing. According to Beatrice Mons, quote, Though these lands were ill-suited for the type of agriculture then practiced by the peasants, the initial economic results confounded the justifiably dismal expectations of many observers. In the early 1970s, peasant cooperatives flourished throughout the Ixcon along the Mexican border, and this success spread a new, spirited confidence that in turn fueled social transformations. Now, there were cooperative projects spearheaded by priests and by Catholic action and peasant organizations, as I understand it, all over the more remote parts of Guatemala, and especially in the northern transversal strip. Remember that the Franja Transversal del Norte? In Huehuetenango, El Quiche, Altavera Paz, Izabal, and Zacapa. I have a crude map that I drew in a notebook to help me along with the geography here, and I'll put it up on the site page for this show where I've got the strip marked out. It's a long swathe across the north, from the Mexican border south for about 100 kilometers. The thing of it is, though, that for whatever reason, all of the anthropologists and historians whose books I could get my hands on wrote exclusively about the colonies and the collectives in the Ixcan and Jalbal, in a large area along the northern foothills in the Sierra de los Cuchumatanes, near Mexico, in Huehuetenango and El Quiche. So those are the only collectives I can talk about in any detail. But the same kinds of things, both here when they're flowering and later when they're not, was going on all over the interior. From Faya's book about the cooperatives, Massacres in the Jungle, quote, what was the social context of the colonization? Before 1966, Ixcan was uninhabited jungle. That year, the first Marinal settlers arrived with the priest Edward Doheny to take possession of the lands in a joint church and National Institute for Agrarian Transformation, INTA, project to buy private lands and receive allotments of certain state properties. The colonizers settled on the banks of the Ixcan River and began to clear the jungle and sow crops, battling against the heat and intense rains, the impenetrable vegetation, snakes, mosquitoes, bogs, lack of roads, and the great distances from towns and commercial centers, loneliness and isolation, end quote. Every peasant received 17.5 hectares, and for anybody who hasn't been operating on metric for a while, a hectare is 100 meters squared, or about two and a half acres, so about 43 acres per colonist. Those individual plots were organized into centers, with each center containing 24 lots. The centers would house communal goods and tools and supplies used by each of the peasants belonging to the center. Those centers were then organized into larger communities. The site of those varied and depended on each individual colonization project. But in general, if a couple hundred peasants came with a given priest from a given area in the highlands, when they came to the Ixcan, all of their centers, once they'd established themselves, would belong to the same community, one that they'd in effect transplanted from their original hope. And that community would be centered in a kind of a pueblo, a bigger town that all of the centers would belong to. The peasants lived out by their plots of land, but community life took place in the town, usually in the middle of all the plots in the centers, where the colonists would gather for market days and to worship, conduct community meetings, and whatever else they needed to do. I know this all seems totally esoteric and unnecessary, but it will, unfortunately, eventually become important. 1969, Father William Woods replaced Father Doheny as the pastor of the Marinel Cooperatives, and he shook up their organization, setting a trend or a template for other colonizers into the 1970s. 
He cut out the middleman role for the National Institute for Agrarian Transformation, INTA, possibly suspecting its motives and the seemingly intentionally clumsy way its bureaucracy handled titles and deeds. According to Ricardo Faya, he also expanded emigration from the highlands, inviting more peasants, and insisted on collective ownership of land, forming the Ixcan Grande Cooperative, which knitted together several co-ops into a larger agricultural community between the Ixcan and Xixoy rivers along the Mexican border. The important, incredible, inspiring thing about these jungle communities, for me, and in general, isn't just that they worked, but that they thrived. I've got two very long quotes about that, one from Faya and one from Mons, so I'm only going to go through one of them from Mons, about Santa Maria Ceja, the Ixcan project founded by Father Luis, the Spanish priest from the Congregation of the Sacred Heart that we heard about during the section on liberation theology. Quote, The cooperative proved instrumental in obtaining funding from international NGOs. When a U.S. organization provided cattle for the cooperative, those who received breeding cows were obliged to give others the offspring so that every cooperative member could start off with several animals. This donation provided milk, meat, and extra cash. Once everyone was secure with several cows, each member could sell or breed animals as they wished. Without these common projects, the isolation and atomization of the basic family unit would have been far greater due to the absence of extended families and ancestral links at the colonization site. The communal spirit guiding the cooperatives was familiar to these settlers. I learned from my parents, even though they had no education, one cooperative member remembered, that when a family has a downfall, one must always help. We are born with, we carry with us a consciousness to aid and care about others. It's one's duty to provide aid. Another added, when someone dies and leaves a family in crisis, we all come together to pray a rosary, to make a collection, to give some food. The cooperative became central to the functioning of the community, facilitating business projects and resolving social conflicts. The work in building the cooperative, particularly the training in the classes, energized the villagers' interest in learning. By 1973, they had built a school and had their own adult literacy promoters. In the village, there were always courses on agronomy, hygiene, how to run a cooperative, health care, children's care, and Bible discussions. The value of working together ran through all of the disparate classes. Within two years, there were 10 communities of the same size as Santa Maria Seca, or even larger. By 1975, as many as 10,000 people were living in the Ixcan. By 1982, the population had risen, according to some estimates, to around 45,000. In the land parcels, the villagers cultivated the corn, beans, and rice that would sustain them. The fields, unlike their exhausted highland plots, did not need fertilizer. In the house lots, they planted oranges, banana, pineapple, tangerines, and yucca. They raised pigs, turkeys, chickens, and cows. Their diet immediately improved, and the days of buying corn were soon behind them. I remember we used to talk about the fact that we will never have to work for a patron again, one stated. We are now working for ourselves. The ability to meet immediate needs led villagers to consider longer-range economic possibilities, especially commercial crops. In this endeavor, they faced new challenges. Anything grew on the land, but we lost a lot of what we planted due to the lack of roads and the difficulty of bringing crops to distant city markets, another one commented. Despite these setbacks, the settlers persisted. With the passage of time, we began to do experiment with new crops according to the strength and ability of each person, he recalled with pride. We began to plant cardamom, coffee, cacao, achiote, pineapple, sugarcane, and a variety of other spices. Cardamom became for them a green gold. This spice, first harvested in the mid-1970s, commanded a good price in the international market, especially Arab countries, reaching 500 U.S. dollars per 100 pounds, end quote. Like I said before, what the cooperatives don't just hint at but prove is that Guatemalans, if left to their own devices, free from the depredations of their government and free to pursue the communal living that so scared the cold warriors in Washington, could build communities that were orders of magnitude healthier physically and socially 
than anything official Guatemala had offered up since the country had broken away from New Spain, or since the Maya themselves ruled the highlands. Towards the end of his chapter on their success, Ricardo Faya leaves us with this sentence, quote, After the repression began again, the settlers would look back and say that it had given them great joy to have owned 17 and a half hectares of the country's most fertile land, and it was no wonder that the army wanted them out so that it could distribute the lands among the rich and more powerful, end quote. Most of the children own no shoes. The Indian comes to the city with hope and no skills. He produces large families and earns 20 or 30 cents a day. Three quarters of the people live on the land, and 90% of that land is owned by 6% of the population. The Indians grow one major crop, corn. The communists tried to redistribute the land, diversify crops, and change their way of life, but they failed. The Indians do not have a tradition of peasantry. They fear responsibility, and when farming for themselves, they are easily discouraged. There were other good things afoot in the mid-1970s, both in the cities and the countryside. The anthropologist Betsy Konefal asserts that young Guatemalan Mayas who were students, Catholic catechists, young professionals, and agrarian activists were coming into their political own. They were, quote, discussing and asserting demands for cultural, political, and economic reform for what they had come to define as Guatemala's pueblo indígena, unquote. But before we can get all of their organizing and theorizing, which has a fair philosophical element to it, we have to understand Guatemalan racism and why any of that was necessary in the first place. Racial politics with regard to indigenous peoples developed differently all over Latin America after the conquest. I think in general we are, or at least I am, more familiar with this situation like Mexico's. Almost from the moment Cortes set foot on the Gulf Coast, Mexico has been an interracial project. He took up and had children with an indigenous woman known as La Malinche, who helped him to dismantle the Aztec Empire the way that Sacagawea helped Lewis and Clark to the West. And Mexico reflects those origins. There is racism, sure, and it flows from white good to dark bad, but it flows more gently than you might think, and there are no clear barriers between one race and another, not even races at all. 99% of the population knows and accepts that there's some mix of European and indigenous, and that mix is, to them, a large part of what makes them Mexican. Guatemala does not have a mestizo, or mixed culture. From the conquest in the 16th century up through current Guatemala in the 21st, lines between white Ladino European descendants and darker-skinned indigenous Mayas are stark and difficult to cross. And although Ladinos could become poor and fall into the same economic conditions as the large majority of the Maya population, indigenous people had been singled out through all of Guatemala's history for special treatment. Under the reign of the last dictator before the Ten Years of Spring, for example, labor laws came into effect that compelled the Maya to render 100 days of labor per year to either the state or large landholders, with non-compliance landing them in jail or in the ground. The law allowed plantation owners to execute disobedient Maya workers without legal repercussions, and because rural education was designed to leave the Maya illiterate, literacy tests left the indigenous population without the ability to vote. Beatriz Mons has a Maya sheet interviewed saying, quote, In the past, we indigenous people were not treated like humans. They looked at us as if we were animals, with no need to learn or earn money. As in the case of animals, they made us work hard. If they wanted to, they would pay us. If they didn't, then they wouldn't. They only gave us a little bit to eat, just so that we wouldn't die, right? Just to keep us alive so that we would continue working another day. People became aware that their parents' land was insufficient, he recalled and that dividing it further among grown children meant moving from misery to deprivation." End quote. People were deprived of life purpose, locked into these go-nowhere cycles of poverty and misery, in conditions we consider absolutely intolerable in the U.S. But on the surface, and in a way that would be very familiar in Mexico, 
the Guatemalan state seemed to embrace Maya culture and history, including pre-conquest motifs in the building of monuments, in state discourse, and even in army training. They held regular beauty pageants specifically for the indigenous campesino communities. This isn't something that people in the U.S. would exactly be familiar with, based on our experiences of Miss America, but if those pageants were anything like what we have out here in the Mexican Sierra, they're integral to the social life of peasant communities. Your pageant winner isn't necessarily your most beautiful girl, but she will be the one who best represents your particular culture. She'll preside over your religious fairs, and when she goes to the next level up in a bigger town, she'll be wearing the traditional dress of your community and maybe even be speaking your particular language, showing you off in a literal way to the wider world. But Guatemalan Mayas had spotted the contradiction in the actions of the state. Whatever it might say, they could not accept that it, quote, embraced Maya folklore while massacring Maya campesinos, unquote. This is a trope that tends to hold across all of Latin America. In the fight for independence against the Spanish, and in an effort to establish national identities, sovereignty, and legitimacy after that fight, all of these countries embraced their indigenous cultures, but only in the ancient, abstract sense. The Aztecs in Mexico, the Maya in Guatemala, the Inca in Peru, all were sacred to the nation as dead heroes and myths, but definitely not as living, breathing Indian peasants. Just as, say, Native American symbols and imagery are built into all of our seals of state, and as Native Americans are revered in our movies and popular entertainment, but actual Indians on actual reservations are either there to be maligned if they operate a casino, or ignored if they don't, left to rot where we put them after our own conquest. In Guatemala during the time of the violence in the interim in the 1970s, quote, Ladino elites tended to employ cultural notions to define and disparage contemporary Indios versus their ancestors, equating identity with traditional practices considered backward and with low cultural status, and called for their assimilation with Ladino society. Underneath official rhetoric were persistent beliefs about the contemporary indigenous races fundamentally flawed, and assimilationist views intertwined with a virulent racism that assumed inferiority based in blood, end quote. Sorry, that's from the Truth Commission report. Regime-endorsed sociology and anthropology journals at the time ostensibly explored indigenous culture and values, but invariably ended up determining that the quote-unquote racial barriers between Ladinos and Mayas necessitated a project of assimilation before democracy could function in Guatemala. Now, I need to indulge in another aside here to get at exactly what the Maya in Guatemala were fighting for with their collectives and cooperatives and committees, because it's not quite as simple as just an end to racism. The regime itself was fighting for an end to racism, by trying to eliminate differences between indigenous people and white Ladinos. Whereas the Maya were for the first time in hundreds of years trying to justify their existence as valuable in itself. Again, I might get lost in the weeds here, because there are a lot of moving parts, and I think I'm still only just beginning to get some traction at the edges of the whole thing. So bear with me, and I might figure it all out right now as I'm talking to you. When the regime's Institute on Indigenous Life proposed in the mid-70s that for Guatemalan democracy to function, assimilation was necessary, it was pointing less than subtly at at least a few different things. It was looking at traje, the Maya traditional dress, which was intricate and could change wildly between villages a kilometer apart. It was indicating indigenous languages, a lingual patchwork of dozens of varied tongues across the highlands and plains. And it was indicting communal land ownership and the tight-knit village structure that had been the mainstay of indigenous life since people had first settled Guatemala thousands of years beforehand. An assimilationist police wanted an indio dressed in a suit, speaking Castilian Spanish and participating in the market economy, ideally on something for export to the United States. The problem of the Indian's skin color could be solved by time, maybe, or maybe by the more horrific activities of the army. And to a certain extent, the assimilationist viewpoint makes sense to us in the U.S., right? It's fine if people have culture, 
but we get real weird if somebody wears a dashiki to a business meeting or a hijab in public. And bilingual folks are fine as long as their English is too. And people can do whatever they want as long as they're being good, productive members of our market economy. But the Maya in Guatemala were fighting for a different value system entirely. So let's get at that. We in the U.S. have two overarching value systems operating in the country right now. The first enshrined in the Constitution and the Declaration for the most part, and elaborated in Declarations of the Rights of Man from the French to the U.N., it's based in so-called natural law. Natural law being, for the most part, what you would find in the Ten Commandments and in the precepts of nearly every world religion. Don't kill, don't steal, don't do harm, respect rights to life and to liberty and to an extent, property. It's a solid set of values, and it would be hard to find too many people working together anywhere that didn't respect them. But we have an entirely different set of values, unrelated to the first, sitting on top, and those are the values of market capitalism. That's not necessarily either a good or a bad thing. It's what we have, and it's important to note. Although we've forgotten that they aren't the same thing, that market capitalism does not rise inevitably from natural law. And the prime value of market capitalism is that more money is better. It's what the system is built around, generating money. Again, that's neither good nor bad. The ethics depends on what you do with the money. But what market capitalism does cause us to do is evaluate things in the world in terms of their financial worth. For example, I'm trying to be a journalist, and I write a lot. And right here, I'm running what I think is a pretty excellent podcast for its age. But neither of those things make me any money. So they are, in an important sense for us as a society and for me as an individual, because I can't force myself to think differently, a failure. We make fun of kids who go to college and study philosophy because we know they won't make any money with it. Whereas the Greeks during the golden age of their culture recognized penniless philosophy as the most noble of all professions, even if most of them preferred to be wealthy. Now what I'm saying is that apart from bare racism, the Guatemalan Ladino society view of the Indian came and comes from our kind of market-based philosophy. They responded to an indigenous person wearing colorful traditional dress in the city in the same way that we would. Why would you wear traje to a business meeting? It's other, it's strange, and it does not make money. And likewise, indigenous traditional methods of collective land ownership and cultivation were much more inefficient for export agriculture than large-scale industrial plantations. And what new Maya cultural institutions were fighting for was the right to, or a philosophical basis for, defending their culture on other grounds. At the very base of it, they would go on to justify indigenous culture as valuable in itself, the same way that within capitalism, money is valuable in itself. And they might say, well, money can buy you what to eat and drink. And they might well tell you that indigenous culture can grow you what to eat and brew you what to drink. And beside that, it can bring you family and community and a sense of belonging that are, maybe we're realizing now, not just things money can't buy, but which capitalism actively destroys. So indigenous peoples get into a few different things during this period. The first is to recognize themselves as a class and to develop a sense of pan-indigenous culture against Ladino hegemony instead of a multitude of isolated languages and villages being slowly destroyed or assimilated one by one by a tiny white minority. The second was to create ever larger organizations like the Committee for Campesino Unity that I'll get into later because it fits thematically later in the podcast. And they began to think of themselves as deserving a right to be part of the governance of their own country, not once they'd put on a suit and learned Spanish, but right then, not despite being Maya, but because they were. I can't spend too much more time on it at this point, but if you couldn't tell, I think the Maya identity stuff is fascinating and exciting. And if you'd like to read anything else about it, Betsy Konafal's book, For Every India Who Falls, colon, A History of Maya Activism in Guatemala, is a great place. And it'll be in the bibliography on the show page. 
But while the Maya of Guatemala were experiencing their first resurgence in centuries, and taking to every corner of the country with great joy all the methods of Paulo Freire and liberation theology, and waking up to hope and faith in themselves, the forces of the government were brooding, waiting for the day when they could test lectures and school teachers against the hard steel realities of mid-century realpolitik. And that's where we're going to end this episode of The Aftermath, before things go south, while we're still enjoying the last bright period for many years to come. I'd like to thank the indomitable Maya Jabaili, who's doing God's own work with the Johns Franz Press in Beirut, and the unstoppable traveler Alex Guyton for giving me some help with publicity this time around. Special credit, too, goes to Joshua Spetter, a teacher of mine, and, I think, a friend, for turning me on to Paulo Freire and all the opportunities there are and will be to keep creating a pedagogy with the oppressed. Finally, I want to give all the acknowledgement I can to the Bourbon Society of Franklin, Tennessee, for being my earliest supporters and for their willingness to save themselves from conservatism before it's too late. Safe for Democracy is written, edited, and produced by me, Jonathan Coombs. Special credit goes to Paradise and Ashes, For Every India Who Falls, Massacres in the Jungle, and the Truth Commission Report, which have been the backbone of this show. You can find those and all the other sources for this episode in the bibliography on the website, safefordemocracy.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and at safefordemocracy.com if you want to get it straight from the source. And if you want to help me out and help to ensure that this show keeps getting made, share it with a friend. Read it on whatever service you use. If you want to go the absolutely extra mile, I'll have a PayPal donate button on the site. That's all for now. Next time, the embassy fire and the beginning of La Violencia. Until then, I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. <laughs>